And uh, before we turn uh, back to the book of Joshua, please uh, join me in coming to God in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the words of that hymn. We thank you much more for grace itself. Lord God, you have bestowed common grace to all of humanity. You, are, you have bestowed on this earth goodness. But you have shown your people a special grace, a saving grace. And uh, as your people, we come to you just now and we ask, Lord God, uh, please again show us a favor in these minutes that is entirely unwarranted or entirely undeserved. Um, we pray that you would, uh, by the preaching of your word, lift us to yourself and help us to see Jesus Christ. Help us to understand how to live in a way that fights our sin and a way that pleases you, our covenant God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, uh, to start with, let me take you back to 8th century China. Believe it or not, that's where we're going. We're going back to the 8th century China. So the army of the ruler, what is his name? Zan Hun. His army is under attack. In fact, they're not just under attack, they are besieged. So Zan Hun's army are barricaded in a city. They are behind the city walls with their enemies surrounding them a little way off. Doesn't sound good, does it? It doesn't sound good at all. It actually gets worse uh, because Zan Hun's army are nearly out of ammunition. So not only are they barricaded in the city, but they've only got a few arrows left. So what are they going to do? Well, at this point, Zan Hun, he summons his military commander. <laughs> and he gives his military commander the strangest instruction imaginable. So Zan Hun summons him and says to him, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make as many men out of straw <laughs> as you possibly can. And I want you to put clothes on them. <laughs> straw men, hundreds of them. You can maybe imagine the military commander is thinking this is not a time for a craft, is it? But regardless, he obeys. And what a stroke of genius. Because what Zan Hyun does is he lowers by rope all of these straw men down the city wall, appearing to the enemy a little, far, a little bit away as though these are real men advancing. So what does the enemy do? The enemy fires on these straw men, all of the arrows landing into the straw men, sticking in the straw men, enabling Zan Hyun to do what? He pulls them back up and picks the arrows, and he's able to provide his army with all the ammunition they need to defeat their foe. A strange instruction, would you agree? Make straw men a strange instruction, but one that was utterly critical to victory. Well, this morning, as we turn back to God's Word, we come to the second part of God's charge to this man, Joshua. And what we're doing here is we are moving from the promises of last week. Maybe, did you tune in last week if you weren't here? There's a lot of promises from God to Joshua. 
We're moving from those promises, and now we're moving into some instructions that God is giving to this man, some commands that God is giving. So let me turn this immediately to you. What do you think we might expect to read? Come on. What would we expect to read? Now, you remember the situation. Joshua is just about to go to war, isn't he? He's just about to cross the Jordan. He's just about to engage the Canaanites. So we might expect some instructions from God about military strategy here, some military formation. We might expect instructions about what type of weapons that Joshua and the people are to use. But did you see it in the reading? Did you see the focus? Perhaps you're thinking this seems like a very, very strange instruction. The entire focus from God is on his word. Before war, you know, instead of military strategy, the focus for Joshua has to be on observing the law of God. We see here, it isn't military formation. It isn't. It isn't even bravery in the face of your foe but it's actually Joshua's relationship with the Word that matters and will determine his success. And maybe this morning, you immediately see the relevance for your own life and for St. Peter's. I hope you do. What is the case for us? As we journey today onwards to God's land of rest ahead of us, is it not true that we also are in a spiritual war today as Christians in Scotland? And is that not a war where it's the same weapon that's critical for the church in the 21st century? What is our chief weapon, surely? It's the same thing, isn't it? It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, Joshua chapter 1. So, let's make sure that we have this open in front of us. Even let's make sure that some of the younger people can see a copy of Joshua 1. And we'll refer to it all the way through. The first thing that I think we need to note here is our attitude to God's Word. Our attitude to God's Word. Now, I think it's a really, really interesting thing to consider contemporary Christianity's relationship to this book, the book of Joshua. For a moment, just to think about how the 21st century church relates to the book of Joshua. Now, I, this might be unfair. I, I don't know what you think. But I reckon that it's probably fair to say that the church today in the West isn't all that familiar with this book. That's probably all right to say, isn't it? That's probably fair to say. Joshua is not one of the more well-known books of the Bible, right? I'll put it like that. So we've got that on one hand. On the other hand, the contemporary church is very happy to quote Joshua. Isn't that a strange dynamics, a strange relationship to have? We don't maybe know this book inside out, but we're, ha- we're happy, to, happy to recite it, we're happy to quote it. I think that's probably true for, for myself or for you as well. If I was to ask you to quote Joshua, I wonder if you could do it. You don't shout it out, okay? But I, I bet you, I'm sure you could do it, even if you don't think you can. Where would you go? You might go to Joshua 24. What is it? Ask for me and my house. Yeah, I bet you can fill in the blanks, right? Ask for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Okay, so we, we could go there. We could go other places. There's, a, there's another location we could go. We could go here. Have a look at verse 9. 
Is it not even a little bit familiar to some of us? Verse 9, this idea, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous and all that sort of thing. Does that not ring a few bells? That's, that's the stuff of kids' memory verses right there, isn't it? That's the stuff of, of Christian gift cards. Be strong and courageous. Now, we might be familiar with it, but here's a question. What does it mean? Be strong and courageous. I mean, we know, surely, this is not just God saying to Joshua, come on, grit your teeth, you're going into that battle. It's not that sort of idea, but what does it mean? Be strong and courageous. Okay, I think there's a couple of pieces to this jigsaw that we've got to put together here to to establish. A couple of pieces of the jigsaw. This is the first. That here, what God is doing, he's calling for courage. Why? Listen, because he is near. That's the first piece of the jigsaw. You got it? This is not just general courage. It's courage because God is near. See, I wonder if we appreciate this or not. See, this this command that we're dealing with, be strong and courageous. I don't know if you're like me. I always associate with Joshua 1. Do you do that? Be strong and courageous. I always think Joshua 1 when I hear that. In reality, this is a command that you find scattered throughout Scripture. It's not, it's not a rare command. We find it a lot. Be strong and courageous. We find it in Deuteronomy innumerable times. We find it in this book a number of times. You go into the books of Chronicles, guess what? You find, you find it there. Now, that's one thing. Okay, this is a common, it's a common command. Wait for it, though. This, surely this is interesting. That in every single, every single instance, as far as I'm aware... Where it occurs in the Bible, that command stands alongside a promise from God and a promise of his presence. Isn't that something? So God does not just say, be strong, be courageous. Even with Joshua, he's not saying, just be brave, be bold. He's saying, be bold because, because I'm here, my servant, and I'm, I'm with you. Okay, so we've got, we've got that piece of the jigsaw. This is about courage because God is near. For the second piece of the jigsaw, can I ask you to do this? Can I ask you to look at the page here? Now, did you notice, so look, it's verse six to nine, isn't it? So did you notice that that command is repeated three times? Now, did we all get that? Sure we did. So you've got, yes, you've got the beginning. Yes, you've, so verse six. Yes, you've got the end, verse nine. Ah, but you've also got it smack bang. You've got it in verse 7. Now, those of you who are astute and observant this morning, you will have noticed that it's actually the middle usage that receives the emphasis from God. Do you notice that? So not only is it emphatic because it's in the middle, but look what God says. It's not be strong and courageous, is it? It's be what does it be strong? Be very courageous. Now, if that middle use is the one that's stressed, don't you think we should notice to what it is linked? If it's the emphatic one? So this is how we'll do it. I'll read it out in the ESV, which really brings it out to you. So just listen. So is this just boldness, generally speaking? Just listen. God says, be strong, be very courageous, being careful to do according to my law. Do you, do you, I'll say it again. So it's not just be bold, 
be strong, very courageous, being careful to do according to the law. Do you see it? If we put the, hey, wait a minute, if we put the two pieces of the jigsaw together, what's the picture before us? Is God just saying to this man, right, grit your teeth for a fight? No, God is calling for a resolve in relation to his word. Isn't that it, friends? Here God is calling for a certain attitude from Joshua in relation to Scripture. An attitude that will see Joshua seek to try and obey God's words, even in really trying and difficult circumstances, and to obey Scripture knowing what? Knowing God is there. God is with him. God is helping him in his obedience. A resolve, a resolve in relation to God's words. Now, okay, fine. But what did I say a moment ago in the introduction? I wonder if we can remember. I said that we, you and I, are in a spiritual war. I think I'm, uh, as I've come across the border back up uh, to, to Scotland, I'm perhaps more aware of that reality than, than I have been in a, in a long, long time. Um, surely we see that we are in a spiritual combat uh, as Christians in Scotland. No. I, I wonder, though, what has been our attitude? for dealing with attitudes. What has been our attitude to that spiritual conflict? You think about it for yourself. I mean, has it been perhaps that we've, in a sense, been almost oblivious to the spiritual hostility that's, that's taken place? You know, maybe... Maybe we have, you know, just going about our, our daily lives and our, our daily business and not actually thinking through what, what's happening on a spiritual level. Is that true? Worse, <laughs> is it possible that we have just been fearful about these things as Christians? Is that true of you, of, of me? Have we been, you know, scared at the way the evil one seems to be using society against the church? Well, surely in light of what we've got here in front of us right now, you see what we need desperately to do, don't you? Even today, even right now, we need to ask God to give us as a church real courage. Courage for the fight. Isn't that the case? That we at St. Peter's, we as Christians today, we need to be on our knees. We need to be pleading with God to give us, to give us a specific type of boldness, Right? A boldness, that boldness that, that so characterized the church, the early church in the book of Acts. You know that theme, the way through Acts? Boldness displayed by the church. We need to ask God for that. A boldness in relation to his word, that we might obey his word, knowing that he's with us, even in our hostile land. So our attitude to the word Second thing that we need to notice here is our speaking of God's Word. Okay, so we've seen our attitude. The next thing that we see is our speaking, our speaking uh, of God's Word. Okay, if this, was, uh, if this were a different type of sermon entirely, um, I think what we could do is just linger on how Joshua chapter 1 informs our doctrine of Scripture, what this portion of Scripture has to say about how we understand the nature of God's Word. Do you see what I mean? 
Just think about what you, what you know about Joshua here. It's quite something, really. So think about Joshua. Joshua knows that his friend Moses has written the book of the law. Okay, that's quite something, isn't it? So Joshua knows. So he knows Moses so well. He's his aide, closest aide. So Joshua knows maybe all Moses' flaws and issues and all that sort of thing. And, and, and Joshua's... Joshua knows he's written this book. And, and more than that, Joshua's probably actually seen him do it. What a thought. He's actually looked on, perhaps, as Moses has put pen to paper, writing the book of the law. And yet, what do you see in this book? All the way through, you see Joshua view Scripture as being special. Isn't that right? You see that? You know, despite the fact that he knows Moses has written it, Joshua, oh, he understands. He understands. Wait a minute. This is this 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 book. This is this book is off God. Like God is behind this. Moses has written it, but God has written it. If we, if this was a different type of sermon, maybe we could linger on how that reinforces our reform view. That what is this book that you're holding in your hands? This book is God's book. Our view that what is its origin? Is that divinely inspired? book, it is something breathed out by God. If it were a different type of sermon, we could go, in, we could go there. Okay, but it is not. So what I want you to notice with me, if you pick up your Bible, I want you to notice what God tells Joshua to do with this book. What does he tell him to do? So here's what we'll do. If you can look to verse 8, and if you show the young ones at home, if you do that, and here, please show them verse 8. And let me... Look, let me make your life easy. Let me tell you what I want you to see. <laughs> um, I want you to notice that God makes this incredibly emphatic. He really stresses this, but he does so by the use of a negative and a really vivid image. So let's see if we get it. Look at verse 8. So notice how emphatic it is by the negative and the image. Do not let this book of the law, depart from your mouth. Do not let this book of the law. Do you, do, you, do you get the sense of how emphatic that is and how stressed it is by, by God? Now, let me again, let me, let me involve you. Let me turn this to you and let me ask you, what do you think exactly God is calling for there? Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. You might think it's an obvious question, but I'll stick with it. What, what, what do you think? Do you think, as so many people have done, and so many of the scholars here, do you think that this is God instructing Joshua about simply his military leadership? Don't let this book depart from your mouth. Did you see the idea at least? So it's the idea that, that God's saying to Joshua, see as you go into war... Make sure that the battle commands you give, make sure all of the military orders that you give, make sure they do not move beyond the principles of Scripture. Do you think that's what this is here? Well, that's not what God says, is it? And God does not confine this to a, a military context. So I put it back to you. Isn't it not more comprehensive than that? If I was to ask you, and you really had to, to give an answer, what do you think God is, is calling for here? Is it not this? God is calling for Joshua to be a speaker of Scripture. That's it. It's as broad as that. Don't you think? Like God saying to this man, in your daily life, 
in your daily routine and the things that you do, you make sure you have my truth, my laws on your lips. As you go about and you are speaking to people, Joshua, in your very daily conversation, even make sure that that is peppered with my laws, peppered with Scripture. Isn't it that? Isn't it as comprehensive and as wide as that? God's saying, be a speaker of Scripture. Go on, go out there, speak Scripture. Now, here's a thought. Um, if I went round you uh, just now, I sort of row by row, I'm reckoning that most of you could tell me people you know who are like that. Is that true? Uh, that Christians you know who, who are really quick in everyday conversation to speak about Jesus? Do you know people like that? Uh, people who, who quote scripture really, you know, just in normal conversation, you're talking about something that they, they oh, this reminds me of straight a parable. Or, they, you know, they, they, they speak scripture. They're, they're just, they, they pepper, their, their, their speech is flavored with God's truth. Can you, could you tell me about people like that? I'm afraid that the reality is this morning, there has to be so much more. Because it's one thing for us to know people like that, Something altogether different for you and I to actually become people like that. Isn't that the challenge before us here? And isn't it an incredibly high bar and a difficult thing? I, I want to ask you very pointedly, bring it to your door and ask you, is your speech currently, is your speech punctuated often by God's word? Your speech now, what about the mums and the dads and the church and with our kids? I mean, are we really um, Deuteronomy 6 type parents? You know, as we go about our daily life, as we rise, as we, you know, fall, as we go along the street, are we not just teaching them, but just speaking of Jesus, speaking God's word to our kids? The mums, the dads, the grandparents. You don't get off the hook either, right? And then what about with each other in here? Hmm? Your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we like to speak about being encouragers. Are we encouragers? Are we encouragers with God's word to each other? And then the, the difficult, the real one, you know what it is. What about with the unbelieving people in your life? Even there. Are we people who are quick to mention Jesus, quick to speak God's truth? Isn't that a challenge for us? Isn't it? In this, surely we ought to follow Joshua as he is a speaker of Scripture on his way to God's rest. So we see our attitude to God's Word, our speaking of God's Word. A third thing, though, is our meditating on God's Word. Our meditating on God's Word. Um, so if I say that word to you, um, just the simple word meditation, um, where did your mind go and what do you think about it? If I was to say, even to the, the younger people, if I was to say meditation, what do you think about it? I find it both interesting and truly disturbing that um, in my children's education in England, in London, that that was part of, uh, part of their education system, that they would be encouraged on a, I don't know what basis, weekly basis or whatever, uh, to meditate. 
So just normal state education, state schooling, at uh, certain points of the day, they're to stop what they're doing. They are to get onto the floor um, and to meditate, okay? Um, you know, I'm sure, what was intended there or what the world thinks of when it thinks about meditation. Do you? Of course you do. What's the idea? The idea, you know, you fold your legs on the ground and you try and empty your, your mind, right? Isn't that meditation as the world knows it? You know, like let's cleanse ourselves, cleanse our mind by emptying ourselves of thought, a practice that is so obviously influenced by Eastern stuff, right? Eastern philosophy. Well, if you have a look at verse 8 with me, let's get back to verse 8. You'll see that Joshua receives, it is another command. It is another part of the command. And what is it? <laughs> he's, he's told to meditate uh, on, the, the, on the word and its day and on the law day and night. What, what is that? I mean, God is clearly not telling Joshua to get on the floor, clear your head. It's not that, is it? It's not an emptying one's self. What is it? It's a filling of Joshua's mind, isn't it? It's the opposite thing to what the world understands, a filling uh, of his mind and a filling with Scripture. And I want you to appreciate that, if you will, appreciate this rather, that meditation as spelled out in Scripture has a double focus There's two things going on when you encounter meditation in the Bible. So there is, on one hand, there is a murmuring quietly of God's Word. That is involved scripturally in meditation, a a repeating, repetition quietly of a section of Scripture. That's on one hand. On the other hand, there is a a lingering on that, and there's a, a dwelling on it, the truths of it. Does everybody follow Do we see what it is? What is meditation in God's sight? It is, yes, a reciting of a portion of Scripture, but it's also a lingering on this. Wait a minute. A a, a wrestling with a certain portion of Scripture. And to the extent that that portion of Scripture begins to infuse us and how we behave and how we think, and it gets into our reasoning and our thought processes and our actions. In fact, isn't it like that little boy who made the news a few years ago? Maybe you remember the story. Do you remember the story? This little child who ate carrots all the time. He carrot after carrot, hundreds of carrots on a daily basis. And what happens to this little child? Why does he make the news? He makes the news because he ate so many carrots, his, his skin was actually turning orange and in a very serious way. Isn't that what God is calling for? Do you see? Joshua to, to so chew over sections of Scripture and his law, to so chew on the truths of God's Word that that Scripture begins to, indeed, it begins to color everything about Joshua, everything that he does, everything, the way he views the world even. Now, let me speak to the, the young ones. You'll permit me to do that. Let me speak to the, the boys and girls just for a moment. So, did you follow what I'm talking about here? We're talking about meditating on God's Word. Right. You don't need to shout out. You don't need to give me an answer. But I do wonder what you think about that idea. So it's the idea of not just reading Scripture, but spending some time really thinking about, mm, thinking about what does that really mean? 
I wonder if you think it's dull. <laughs> I wonder. Then I'd put it to the adults in the room, to you at home. What's your approach to that? This idea that we need to get away from a superficial five minutes with Scripture in the morning, you know, with your coffee, and instead to be returning to that portion of Scripture and to returning to God's truth throughout the day, wrestling on that truth, seeking to work it through in our head. What, what do we think about that? So I say, do, do, do you think, whoop, time-consuming? Is there even the seed of thought that you think, doesn't sound exhilarating? You thinking that? Oh, I'm desperate for you to appreciate that just nothing could be further from the truth, that would be dull or boring. See, I would ask you, what was the first item of praise this morning? You know, come on. Remember? Psalm 1. I think Alistair even quoted from it last Sunday night. It's a psalm that we know well. What does the psalm do? What does God do in the psalm? He lays before you the way of true blessedness in this life. Now, what does that mean? That means that this is a psalm that shows you the way of, of contentment, <laughs> of joy in life. And can I, can I read to you what God says in that psalm? He says this, blessed is the man. No, happy is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. Do, do you see it? Are we possibly thinking this isn't important for my life just now? The 21st century as a Christian in Dundee, meditating, that's all right for Joshua, that's not for me. We're beginning to think like that. If we only get away from this superficial relationship with Scripture, if we get our teeth into Scripture, we come back to Scripture, we wrestle with God's Word, God tells us that truly is in your life, Christian friend, a way to contentment and a way to joy before your God. And I think because of the importance of this, we need some direct, you know, application, you know, rubber hitting road type stuff. And I'm sure you can see there's application for every one of us in here who's a Christian. What do we do from here? We go out into the world and we seek to meditate on God's word. It's simple, straightforward, fine. My question would be to you, listen, who is God speaking to? Joshua. In what context? As he is about to lead the people forward and lead them to that land of promise. So you can see that I'm compelled in some ways to speak to the elders of St. Peter's, to speak to the men who are called to serve in the Kirk session. Now, the elders, listen to me for a moment. You would see, guys, and you'd agree with me as your minister, wouldn't you, that we have got an incredible responsibility as elders, don't we? We have been charged, and I think about it, we've been charged before God by the church and to do what? To, to in a sense, lead the congregation ever forward to this rest of God, to the rest of the land of God. Now, I would ask the elders or put it to the elders at this point, what do you think, therefore, is an incredible priority for us? Or I'll, I'll change it. I'll change it, and I'll ask you this. What does St. Peter's need most from its elders? What does this church need most? What would you say? That we'd be guys of vision, 
It would be organized. They would have really good ideas about outreach. Mission, we'd get that sorted. Is that what we need, number one? Maybe. Surely, though, what we're seeing here this morning is that as those entrusted to lead, we need most to be engaging God's word. Isn't that it? What does St. Peter's need most from his elders? To be men of scripture, men of the Bible, men who meditate on God's law morning and night. And then the fourth and last thing, so we've seen our attitude to God's word, our speaking of God's word, our meditation on God's words. And the last thing is our doing of God's word. Um, I think people don't appreciate that a minister knows what it's like to listen to a sermon. (laughs) I know what it's like to listen to a sermon. I've sat where you have sat millions of times. So I know that when you get toward the end of a sermon (laughs) and it's quite warm in the room and the sun is coming through and you've been up uh, quite late the night before and there's a lot going on, I know very well that those eyelids can get a bit heavy and you can get the sermon nods at some point. I know I have had the sermon nods in the past all too often. If that is happening... I would appeal to you, brother and sister, come back to us as we close. Because as we end, I think we come to what is the most important aspect. Did you hear it? The most important aspect in Joshua chapter 1. So come back, fight the heavy eyelids, and look to verse 8 again. Now, I think you can get ahead of me here if you look at verse 8. If you look at verse 8, you can see, can you? what the most important element is. Just look for the purpose clause as I read it. So God says, right, don't let this book depart from your mouth and meditate on it. It's a purpose clause. So that, so that you may be careful to do. Now, do you see what's going on there? Like, do, you, do you see the purpose, the aim What's God's desire with Joshua, and can I say with you and with me? The desire is not simply that Joshua speaks Scripture, meditates upon Scripture, reads Scripture. It's the reality that that God wants Joshua to do that in order to obey, to go actually go out and live according to what he's meditated upon. He wants Joshua, and he wants you, and he wants me to be a doer of God's word. Now, oh, if we had longer, I've, I've wrestled with us. But if we had longer, I, I, I do think we could just, we could, we could go into the controversy that surrounds the, the result of obedience that you find here. Do you notice it at the end, end of verse 8? So God says, you know, if you obey, now what's the result? Do you see he promises prosperity. Oh, I do hope we see why that's contentious in a sense, do we? So I'm speaking to you just now at this point, we're in St. Peter's, but as I speak to you at this hour, up and down the land, and in London, rampant. In Dundee, I've got no, no idea, but no doubt as well that it's here too. You have churches but you have formerly wonderful churches, formerly evangelical churches, and probably at this hour, they are teaching what we know as a health and wealth 
idea, health and wealth, gospel. Don't we know it? This idea that if we just obey, God will prosper us financially. You know, if we just obey, and if we just, of course, if we just put some money into the church coffers, if we do that, it's that promise. Oh, your bank balance will bulge. God will cause it to, to grow. And if we had longer, couldn't we linger on that and show how uh, disgusting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is heretical, isn't it? You must understand that the success that Joshua is promised here is what? Is it to do with, with that? It's to do with success in following God's will in his life, isn't it? And for his people, you must understand that those terms you've got in front of you, success and prosperity, so rarely in the Bible have anything to do with money or with cash. I think I'm right in saying that there's only one instance in the real depths of Ezekiel where these terms have anything at all to do with finance. Longer we could we could linger on, on that, but instead, what I want us to do, we, we close the sermon. I want us to, to, to think about the true gospel, the, the real, real gospel for a moment, because there is an obvious mistake we could make this morning as we look at Joshua 1. I do wonder if you can just think about what we're seeing here. Do you recognize the mistake that people could make? Last week, we noticed, didn't we, that typologically, that this crossing of the Jordan, this land of Canaan, what does it represent? It stands for this eschatological rest of God. Does everybody follow that? So this crossing of the land, this crossing of the Jordan, this land of promise, stands as a picture of of what is ours in Christ, what is ours now, and what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you see the potential mistake that people can make? They could look at this and think that obedience is the way to that salvation. You could read these verses and think, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, superficial reading of this, that obedience, if I only obey, if I only try and pull my socks up, if I only try and adapt, maybe attend church and maybe just get my moral living a little bit better, if I only try and obey and shape my life a little bit more like God's word, then, then that's the way to God. That's the way to salvation. Do you see the mistake? To see the, how erroneous that is, I only need to point you to the very last words of the section. Look at verse 9. Look at the end of the section. So the author ends the same way as the previous way, but what's the, what's the promise? Look at it. The promise is that God was going with Joshua. Do, do you see? Do you see? We learn there that obedience is not the way to God. Obedience is something that flows out from an already existing relationship with God. Do you see it? Obedience not the way to God. Obedience something that's necessary, but something that flows out of an already existing relationship with God. And if you are not a Christian in here, I long for you to understand that. Long for you to hear that. Long for you to appreciate that you will quite simply never, ever, ever, ever in your whole life obey enough never enough to earn eternal life, never be enough to, to come to God, never ever will it happen. 
such as your sin, such as God's beautiful, righteous standard, if you just simply try to obey, to enter the land, you will fall short. It is only, only if you are walking with God in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is only then that you know this everlasting rest of God, this glory of his salvation. And I wonder if the Christians in here see why. You do, don't you? What, what is so special about Jesus? What, what would you say, Christian friend? He's our savior. He's atoned for our sin. He is raised. He's resurrected as a day of joy for us. But even as you look at Joshua 1, are you not given cause to praise your savior this morning? Christian friend, what has Jesus done for you? What has he done for all who will turn to him in faith? He has been for us both bold, strong, right? He's been strong and courageous for us, hasn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ for you, for me, Christian friend, he's lived that life of blessedness that Psalm 1 testifies to, wants us to sing about, isn't that right? And you look at Joshua 1 and you realize, wait a minute, Jesus Christ for for me, for, for you, he's done that. He has obeyed comprehensively and perfectly the will and the word of God, hasn't he? Yeah, he, Jesus Christ reads scripture, meditates in scripture, but he has obeyed it fully and perfectly. And to what extent? Obedience, even to the point of death, even death on that cross for your sin. If you are not a Christian, understand this, nothing else. It is only if you are united to Jesus Christ by faith that you cross the Jordan into God's rest. And for the rest of us, for the Christian, we know what to do now, right? Don't we? Christian friends, what do we do? We rejoice in Jesus. We rejoice in what he's done, but what do we do? We go from here, we go into the week, and we? We pick up the Bible. Isn't that what we do? Don't we? We go out and we meditate on God's word. We read God's word. We speak of God's word. And you and I as Christians, out of gratitude to God for his eternal glory, we seek to obey God's word. All in his power and all in his presence. Isn't that right? For his glory, the glory of the one who has by the blood of his beloved son. He's purchased us and he is secured for his people. Everlasting let's bow and let's pray gracious Lord we, we thank you so much for your words we thank you that it is a joy there is joy to be had for the Christian as we meditate upon your word as it points us to your redemptive work that has been complete in Christ as we read scripture and we are pointed to our beloved saviour the very Son of God. Lord, we do pray that you would help us as we seek to study your word, to learn of you. And we pray in Jesus' name, for his name's sake. Amen.